Have you ever heard about the restaurant that went to the moon? They say it has great food, but no atmosphere. <laughs> That's right. I went there because while we're not exactly prepping for galactic travel, we are digging into our second course of this conversation with our gracious and knowledgeable guest, Carl Robbins. So you know how we do it, fam. Let's dig in. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The CD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Oh, fam, it is really a treat for us to be able to have this follow-up conversation with Carl from last week. And, you know, I've heard a lot of positive feedback thus far. And fam, we're just getting started on that conversation. So if you happened to miss last week's chat with our esteemed guest, I'm going to encourage you to pause and listen to last week's episode first. That's season two, episode 71, where we introduce the role of dissociation in OCD. And even more specifically, we really looked at imaginal absorption, which is a type of dissociation. And then zoom on back over here, y'all, because we're here and we're ready for this conversation. And I really think if you have last week's convo under your belt, it really will provide some important context and support for today's chat. Also, I am excited to share this conversation with you, fam, as I've already found this discussion to be so helpful, and I've told Carl this as well. I've already used it with so many of my clients, and I really just think the exercises that we're going to talk about today are just really, really helpful applications. So with that, I'm going to give you just a quick little heads up that there will be a few short spurts of reflection time, fam which I decided to give a little bit of background music to just really as a placeholder for folks that may be jumping into an episode and go, oh, it's dead air. Maybe this didn't work, what have you. So I, I did put in music as a placeholder. So if you find it distracting, feel free to go ahead and skip ahead on your favorite podcasting app, on YouTube, or even using the good old-fashioned pause button. <laughs> Typically, when I feature timed experiences here on the show, I will edit that time down for you, fam, but as I kind of played with it, I just felt like it kind of took away from the exercise. So I had it in the music, but if the music distracts, just jump ahead. Most importantly, I just want you to be able to participate and join us in these exercises if it would be helpful for you. So just wanted to give you that note. This seemed like the best solution. Okay. So in an effort to not neglect giving you all the informed consent, fam, my vulnerable self theme is showing just a tad, but I also want to just take a moment to clarify a few terms and acronyms for any new fam joining us today. Again, if we presume that everyone here did in fact hear last week's episode, this is going to sound familiar, but a little review never hurt anyone. And if you're completely new, then I'm glad I'm taking the time because otherwise you're like, what, what, what are all these things y'all are talking about? I'm not in on the family lingo. So I'm going to catch you up, fam. No worries. I got you. 
But you'll hear Carl and I discussing ICBT, so that stands for Inference-Based Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And we also discuss a bit of ERP, that's Exposure and Response Prevention Therapy. It's also under the umbrella of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, but it is very different. They are feathers of two very different birds, (laughs) y'all. Very distinct and very different from one another. And these, along with medication support, are our evidence-based practices that quench when it comes to OCD. So if you're interested in learning more about these treatment modalities, you can learn more about all of the above in earlier episodes of OCD Family Podcast. I'll have those linked over on the blog. But you can also visit icbt.online or iocdf.org to learn more about these models, the research resources, and international provider directories. Additionally, we briefly chat about or reference ACT, which is Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and CBTI, which as you might have guessed, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, but this is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. And all of these resources, again, as well as more resources and information about Carl, it will all be available over at ocdfamilypodcast.com on this episode's blog. So at any point, Please feel free to lean into that resource. It's free and available for you to provide more information about any of the episodes and guests featured here at OCD Family Podcast. Okay, fam. So on that note, one last little clarification, and then I promise, I promise we're jumping back into our conversation with Carl. But I just wanted to note, last week when I was bragging about Carl and his work at the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute of Maryland here in the States, I referenced him as being one of the co-directors, along with Mike Hetty, another guest we've welcomed here as part of the podcast fam, who is indeed a co-director at ASDI. But Carl is actually the director of training at ASDI. Again, ASDI, that's the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute of Maryland. And then Mike Hetty, while still a co-director, is co-directors along with Sarah Crawley and Sally Winston. And all I can say is those are four powerhouses under one roof. That's a full staff. So, I mean, folks in Maryland, you have a lot of hope available to you. But here is the great news, fam. Maryland or not, wherever you are in the world today, even if you're in a remote area, I I get it. I am here with a bunch of cornfields. If you have a Wi-Fi signal, if you've been able to access and hear this podcast, then there is hope for you, too. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive back into this convo, fam, because we have so much more great conversation to cover, and I can't wait for you to hear more. Welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. So, Carl, look at you. Two parts with Carl. I get to pinch myself that I get to have these conversations. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to uh, talk about this topic more. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about over the past few days is the mindless aspect of a dissociation. And in some ways, the opposite of a dissociation would be mindfulness. And perhaps there's a way of understanding mindfulness. The reason why it can be so helpful in OCD is that it's a way of addressing imaginal absorption, dissociation. Yeah, so I've lived experience of OCD as well, and subclinical at this point, thanks to ICBT. And and I did do ERP too, but it only took me so far. But what's interesting is I don't get a lot out of mindfulness exercises. I have a really hard time going there. Like, I have never 
enjoyed doing meditative exercises. And I mm-hmm. and yet my brain, maybe because I'm just like <laughs> tapped out, but my brain is very good at sweeping into the OCD bubble without even recognizing it around my vulnerable self themes. So it's really interesting. But I think realizing, no, it's not that you're not good at mindfulness, but that you are getting into that mindless aspect. But it's interesting because I hadn't thought of it that way. I'm like, oh, I don't like those exercises. They're boring. I, my mind wanders, <laughs> all those things. And I think in fairness to you, lots of people, there are so many associations between mindfulness and mindfulness meditation. And, and there's so many sort of assumptions and misconceptions which is why it may be better to talk about it as a form of attention training. Yeah. Right. And a shift in attention. So in some ways I, I, I like to stay away from even the term mindfulness. And so what's the alternative to being immersed mm-hmm. in the story, in your imagination is to be attending to your sensory experience. So how do we contact the present moment? This might be a good time to do a few brief experiential exercises to maybe demonstrate this. Yes, I would love that. I think that'll be helpful for the fam too. Okay. So I want you to sort of think about, and everybody can do this who's listening to the podcast, right? Okay. I want you to identify some worry or obsession. It doesn't have to be high on your higher, but it's just some potential problem mm-hmm. that's, you know, that you tend to go to or is currently trouble you, either a worry or an obsession. Okay. And when I say go, right, and this is not imaginal exposure, by the way, when I say go, I want you to just spend about 30 seconds just letting yourself become immersed, absorbed into that concern. Okay. Ready? Go. Okay, come back and let me know when you're back. I'm here. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So were you able to sort of go there to some extent or another? Were you yeah. able to sort of maybe not completely immerse, right? Because it's, you know, because you're doing it on purpose. Right. Right. And the other thing is, is that, you know, you knew this was an exercise, right? Mm-hmm. So now what's interesting is, is notice when I invited you to come back, you intuitively knew what it means to come back. Which also tells you that you intuitively knew that you were gone, right? Yeah. Which is interesting, right? You you knew that you weren't here, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. You were somewhere else in terms of time and place, mm-hmm. right? And then when I invited you to come back, notice how sort of effortless it was. And what'd you do? What'd you do when I asked you to come back? Uh, I looked back to you to engage in the conversation. Yeah. Okay. So what you did is, is that you redirected your attention mm-hmm. naturally without effort back to me. Right. Okay. All right. Now, would you call that thought suppression? Were you fighting your thoughts? No, I no. was just shifting no, my, no, no, my attention. No, no. Were you avoiding the concern? No. No, you just made a decision to redirect your attention back to the task at hand, back to the here and now. Yeah. 
back to your senses. Yeah. Right? Is the is that you made eye contact. Okay. So let me invite you to sort of do this again. And you did what virtually everybody does when they do this exercise. And you actually do something behaviorally when I invite you to go into the concern. You ready? You ready? Bring up the worry again. Okay, go. What'd you do? Okay, there it is. What'd you do? I'm, I'm looking... I'm looking to kind of focus my attention, kind of finding a point <laughs> to kind yeah, of yeah, allow yeah. myself to think about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what you're doing is, and you virtually everybody either looks up or down, and what's happening is, is that you are disconnecting. Yeah. Doesn't it sound familiar? Yeah. You are disconnecting sensory contact with the present moment. Mm-hmm. So that you can bring your attention, bring your mental resources into going into the worry, the yeah. story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Because we only have limited attentional resources. Okay. So now here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to stare at my nose. Right. Mm-hmm. And, f- and if you're on the podcast, you could just go ahead and pick some object and stare at it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Focus your attention on it. Okay. Now go into the story. It's much harder. Now, okay, now now my nose is not, you know, Zoloft, right? This is not, okay. But what, but what it says is, is that you are directing your attention mm-hmm. into sensory experience, right? Yeah. Into the here now. Here is where reality is. Reality is in your perception. It's not in your imagination, mm. right? And so this now suggests why... Intention training or mindfulness, although mindfulness is, as we've talked before, people bring all kinds of baggage to that, but sort of working with your attention and staying anchored in reality, in your sense of experience, in, in, in the seventh module of ICBT, we talk about it being reality sensing, right? And some people call that a behavioral intervention. Okay. But, but it's grounded in, you know, in cognitive work, I will say that, you know, then in fact, this sort of suggests some of the work that can be done, which is probably one of the reasons why mindfulness training, which in many ways is about noticing that your mind is sort of wandered and bringing it back to your sensory experience in the present moment. I will tell you, I've done this exercise with probably hundreds of people at this point. I've had one person be able to stare at my nose and go into the story. He was a professional actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. And isn't that what actors are trained to do? It's to be sort of connected with the other people on stage, right? With the set and the other people on stage. And at the same time, be in touch with the script, with the story. Yeah. Well, and I have a, uh, I double majored in theater (laughs) and and psychology. Um, And so back in undergrad and yeah, part of the training was learning to take the stimulus and say yes and. So you need to be aware of the story. You need to be aware of your story within the story. You need to be able to like hold all of those intention. And so I can see how he would do that. At the same time, though, 
like as I was focusing on your nose and I was thinking about the story and I'm a pretty good multitasker usually, but I was feeling that teeter totter of I am trying to focus on two very different things at the same time. That's exactly right. And, and, and notice and notice those are two very different things, right? So at yeah. the core, this is why we talk about perception and common sense, right? On one side of the bridge, imagination and the OCD bubble, which is an immersive lived in experience on the other side, the invitation to cross that bridge is the what if, mm-hmm. is the initial doubt, mm-hmm. right? And then when you accept the invitation, then your mind then creates a narrative that leads you to become immersed in this story. Mm-hmm. And once you're in the bubble, right, and you're getting lost in some possibility, right, then there is no solution because the mind can always come up with a new possibility. Right. 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 Which is why sort of arguing with the story, most people find not particularly helpful. Right. The idea is, is to sort of catch yourself being invited by the original initial doubt to cross the bridge into the bubble. And then once you notice that you're in the bubble, mm-hmm. to learn how to drop the story and come back. Yeah. All right. Now, I really want to emphasize this. Dropping the story is not thought suppression. You're not fighting anything. Yeah. You're choosing where you're going to focus. And it becomes a recognition that this is just a narrative. Yeah. Right? And that I have a choice to either stay in the narrative or come back. Yeah. Come back. You know, it is interesting because as we just went through that even, and it's like, are, am I focusing here or there? It was like there was actually a third part where I was focusing on the fact that I was trying to focus on the two parts. And so that is really where we're kind of shifting some attention. And what you're describing is that mindfulness of being aware we're coming out of the story and the possibilities. And it's hard to imagine the the endless possibilities when you're like realizing that you're bridging between these two things. Whereas when you're in the story, it's hard to not imagine every dooming possibility that's there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. You know, what's interesting too, Carl, as a person with lived experience of OCD, I was telling you, I've never really loved mindfulness as an intervention. I think it's very helpful for some people. Act, folks, calm calm yourselves because I'm not saying it's bad. It's metacognitive, all that. I'm not saying it's bad. But the reality is, if you want to look at the experience and even what we did just now, see, I wouldn't have even thought of that as mindfulness. And I think you were making that point in terms of the, the connotation just the bad rap that mindfulness or deep breathing, things like that can get in this kind of, oh, yeah, I don't know. I can't, my brain doesn't really get into that. But really what you're describing is this process of learning how to shift attention and be mindful, use mindful direction to focus yourself and orient yourself, ground yourself back in here and now reality. But something that was interesting is I was thinking about it because I have autistic children. They all have different varying support needs. And then one of my kids also has a language processing disorder. And as many autistic folks may experience in their language development, there's something called gestalt language processing. 
where entire scripts can take on meaning of one kind of narrowly focused thing. And so kids or adults, they can use all of this really rich, full language, but their meaning is very, very targeted. So for example, my daughter used to say in preschool, oh, what a beautiful day. This is great. The sun is shining. The clouds are fluffy, whatever. And then they would sit down for calendar time at the carpet and they'd be like, is it sunny or cloudy today? And she looked blank. She did not understand the question. It didn't make sense because her way of saying it's sunny came from this larger script that imprinted for her this particular meaning, right? And so part of the process for the gestalt language processing and speech therapy and, and different work and home practice is breaking that language down, recognizing that these words can have different meanings. They can have the meaning they had for you, but they can have these different meanings and piecing them together to create more experience, more language for our world. And I was thinking about it because I was like, I think I was kind of doing that with mindfulness in a kind of scripted concept. And I think I probably get stuck in that even within OCD too, in that kind of I've imprinted that this whole experience means this thing right here, when really it can mean so many different things if I can kind of break it down and piece it together. But I have to be mindful. I have to be consciously aware that I'm doing that to be able to then make some of those new connections. And so it just was a thought that triggered for me. It's interesting because, yeah, I mean, I think it's... it. We get caught up on language, we get caught up on concepts, we get caught up on constructs, and even that process can cause us to dissociate into this different place, be absorbed into this different place. And so bringing ourselves back to, am I losing the forest through the trees? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was totally, I was totally living in the land of imagination right now. You, you know, what you're describing, mm -hmm. and let's unpack it in this way. What you're describing sometimes is this sort of fast, automatic way of sort of thinking. This fact there's a famous, famous psychologist who actually won the Nobel Prize for this work, and he talked about fast thinking and slow thinking. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, what's happening in OCD is that there's this sort of automatic and what we call an intrusive thought. Mm -hmm. There's sort of automatic sort of slipping into the bubble, slipping into the obsessional narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And it can feel sort of sudden and uncontrollable, right? What are you getting out of? You're getting out of the OCD bubble. You're getting out of this absorbed in this very convincing and frightening story. Yeah. Right. And going somewhere else. And yeah. Where's the somewhere else? Reality. How do you contact reality? You contact reality through your senses and your common sense. That's the direction of out. Yeah. So there's in and there's out. And by the way, for, for you know, for my brilliant colleagues who know RFT, there's probably a way of explaining it in, in those terms. Yeah. Right? There's in and there's out. Well, and I love the doubt, too, because I think we use that, that phrase colloquially, but if you're thinking about it again from an ICBT perspective, when you're in doubt, when you're doubting your here and now reality, zoom out 
of that imaginal story zoom back into reality. And then we can start to see, does this justify what's going on? Sometimes in the moment, shit's going on. And you're like, yep, this is this is bad situation going on in the present. Okay, deal with it in the present, right? But a lot of times we are living in the uh, trying to prove that this isn't already, the bad thing hasn't happened, that this isn't going to come true, et cetera, et cetera. We are living in our head. One thing I wanted to circle back to, Carl, and really distinguish this point, because I know before last year when I really started to understand this model more and understand the manual more and all the things, it was hard for me to distinguish this. It sounds like it was even hard for you when you first came upon it in 2010, took some time to digest. But you reiterated when we went into that experiential practice there, this isn't an imaginal exposure. And I think sometimes ERP folks, whether they're the clinicians or researchers or whether it's people that have been doing that therapy in session or family members that have been helping, it's hard to distinguish. Well, why wouldn't that be imaginal? I mean, from an ICBT perspective, I think the argument is, no, this is the obsessional sequence that you're going into. This is where you made that inference of doubt. This is where it is. But for ERP folks, sometimes they're like, but that is the imaginal exposure. And so you were distinguishing this isn't imaginal exposure. And I wonder if we could just even hit on that point again, because I think it's particularly coming from an ERP framework, it's hard to wrap your mind around. Okay. I meant specifically that that exercise is not an imaginal exposure. What I did is that this was an experiential exercise where the fundamental point was to help make the distinction. Yeah between the imagination and perception, between, between the back door and the front door yeah. for the amygdala. Okay. So I really want to sort of emphasize this. You know, it's interesting. I went to a seminar mm -hmm. uh, on, on how to really make powerful imaginal exposure scripts. Yeah. I bet that was an interesting and, and, seminar. And, and, and it, it, it was, it, you know, and it was masterfully done. Uh-huh. And he actually, the webinar leader actually took us through an imaginal script and it was about lettuce being contaminated. And you actually, and when you think about it, right, this lettuce was probably picked in a field with, with farm uh, machinery that probably has had contact with animal products and it could very well be contaminated and can very well spread it to the lettuce. And <laughs> what was sort of striking about it is the whole idea is to make the experience vivid. Yeah. Right. To make the experience believable. Mm -hmm. But from an ICBT point of view, this person was actually creating the script. The imaginal script. By, by, by using all of the tricks of inferential confusion. Yeah. Right. And, and, and in fact, the leader then apologized because, oh, I'm sorry if you're immersed in this disgusting story, if you're about to eat lunch. So that the goal was immersion. Yeah. Right. Right. And from within a behavioral model, it makes sense. Right. right? That if you think that the key here is the learning that comes from exposing yourself to the feared possibility, then, then that makes sense. ICBT sees it very, very differently, right? Which is that this idea about sort of the vividness, the immersion, the absorption, 
in the imaginary story is the problem. Right. Right. So there are ways in which these are incompatible. Right. And that's one way in which they are. And again, I am not at all saying, because I've written about this, that people will say, you know, imaginal exposure, you know, saved my life. I grant it. I, I understand. There's data to show that it worked. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I do think that at the very least, I don't know if I said this before, but I'll say this again, that we should probably assess for people that are really prone to imaginal absorption, to dissociation, and maybe those folks, we need to be more careful in terms of using imaginal exposure with those folks. Yeah. Because, yeah. So. But wouldn't we, maybe I'm certain shit, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> wouldn't we say, though, that anybody with OCD is more prone to imaginal absorption because inferential confusion is that mechanism? That's, that's a really in interesting question. We certainly know that inferential confusion, which is the difficulty with distinguishing imagined possibility, right, with relevant probability based on sensory experience and common sense, right? So, yeah. so, and what do we mean by confused? What we mean is, is having trouble telling the difference. Right. Confused conclusions kind of thing. Yeah. Right. You know, my wife has, has two nephews that are close in age and very similar. And I call Jack Pete and Pete Jack. So I confuse them, right? I have trouble telling them apart. And that's what inferential confusion is. And there's something called the inferential confusion questionnaire which shows that people with OCD have a tendency more than people who don't have OCD to get confused in this way. And that also seems to be correlated for a lot of people with this tendency to become absorbed in the imagination. Now, you know, what's the chicken and the egg? And probably there's an interaction between inferential confusion and this tendency to get lost in your imagination. Let me just and all right, again, there, there's such, you know, particularly coming from the trauma world, we tend to see, we tend to see a dissociation as a consequence of distress, yeah. right? That it's, it's a result. But what the work of, of Sofer Dudek and others says is there's actually a bi-directional relationship mm -hmm. that the dissociation is not only a consequence, it's also a cause and that there's an interaction there between distress and dissociation, yeah. which is certainly true, for example, in panic, which we won't go into. Here's a really, really interesting idea, and here's a concrete suggestion that comes out of this. Sofer Dudek was originally a sleep researcher. Okay. And there actually is evidence that with sleep deprivation, with insomnia, there's more, and it makes sense, there's more of a tendency to become absorbed in the imagination or for imaginal images to be more accessible, to be more intense. Right. And one of the best things you can do if you have this tendency is to fix your sleep. Right. So let me put in a plug for CBTI and sleep hygiene yeah. and medication. And I think you even mentioned that, you know, like when you get a good night's sleep, it's amazing how much that can help your OCD. And maybe this is one of the mechanisms for that. Yeah. You know, I, I can't remember if I said it before we were recording or not, but I, I just did a training for the local behavioral health inpatient, outpatient, intensive outpatient team working here in my local community. 
to raise awareness on OCD. And we were talking about it in the context of psychosis or sometimes even mania or hypomania where we could see the dramatic impact that lack of sleep has on demonstrating these symptoms on affecting reality testing on the symptom presentation and oftentimes we can distinguish because if this person is inpatient and they get medication to help them sleep whether they want to or not that stuff clears up pretty fast in true mania in true psychosis we could have an episode that lasts days, weeks, months, it's hard to even differentiate. But sometimes just getting some sleep again. <laughs> or if someone has a fever, we see this sometimes too, where people can go into a little bit more of a delirium. The fever comes down, the body's fighting off whatever was causing that. They get some good rest. They get some food. Food, rest, those things can make such an important difference. So I think that is a really important plug. And when you were talking about depersonalization, too, because I think there has been more advocacy from people with lived experience. And I'm thinking of um, one of the Instagram creators, even that does some ICBT awareness, Madison, has brought a lot of attention to depersonalization, OCD. And I think it's important, but it, it's interesting because something you just said, and I wrote a note on it. Is, is this a consequence or is it a cause? I think it's both because it's like, yes, we can have a subtype where I feel like I'm not a part of myself and that can go bridge really, really uh, well with existential OCD as well as group. But also it's kind of just the process that we've been describing. It's that going over the bridge and through the woods <laughs> into the imagination, the obsessional story. You know, it's interesting is, which is relevant not only in OCD, but also in uh, depression, is that there is evidence that rumination leads to depersonalization. I'm not shocked by that, actually. You know, that, yeah. because, because, because there's this sort of sense that when you sort of come back, you come out and come out of whatever you happen to be chewing on, uh -huh. that when you come out, there is this sort of profound sense of disconnection. Yeah. So again, which then depersonalization, feeling depersonalized, feeling sort of out of your body or feeling not yourself, mm -hmm. right? That then can become a trigger for all kinds of anxiety. Because if we talk about something called anxiety sensitivity, that's when people become scared. Oh my God, I'm going crazy. Mm -hmm. And so depersonalization, derealization are often triggers for having a panic attack. Yeah. It's interesting. And I've had some chats and I, I was talking with this staff, but I was also, I've had chats with other people with lived experience. And it's like an important thing to remember is when folks that are quote unquote going crazy are going crazy, it's more egocentric for them in terms of the realm they're entering into. If we qualify that as say a, a psychotic episode. Okay. But folks that are really afraid that they're going crazy, it speaks to the nature of really OCD in and of itself that doesn't diagnose it. But having that ego dystonic 
I don't want this. I am losing my mind. Am I not tracking reality anymore? I mean, in a full psychotic episode, there's really not that awareness usually. And Which goes insight. Right. Yeah. Or that insight of like, yeah, I'm totally not tracking what's going on. My mental status. But that fear of could I be going crazy and that panic and all of those things, even seeing how already folks at that point of awareness are probably very swept into that lived in story, right? They're already there. And I have empathy for anybody experiencing symptoms of panic. It is terrifying. A lot of people end up in the ER thinking they're having a heart attack. It's a distressing experience for sure. But realizing again, and this is where it's so groundbreaking, something like ICBT, being able to go from that to this is a trick and I don't have to do anything with it because what do you do with the reality that this is a trick? I don't have to get in this is so categorically different and it's so freeing. And so it's it's, it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Let me emphasize something about panic because panic disorder and OCD are often fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. Okay. That probably the best way to understand panic is that panic is, I will say, always or virtually always becoming aware of a particular sensation and internal experience. It can also be a thought or an emotion, but generally it's a sensation, right? And then having a scary story. This is, again, where the imagination and scary stories that play a role uh-huh. and that the scary story is something about dying, going crazy, losing control, not being able to function, embarrassing yourself. But there's a scary story about the sensation. Now, what happens in panic, right, is, is that as you become immersed in the scary story, that will actually cause you to secrete more adrenaline for your heart rate to go up, for you to breathe more quickly. And then that accentuates the sensation, which makes the scary story seem more real, which then accentuates this sensation. And so panic is always this self-amplifying, self-perpetuating loop that escalates into this all hell break loose experience. And you are convinced that you're dying, going crazy or losing control. Right. So what's really, really important is, is that it is, that there is both behavioral and cognitive work to be done for panic disorder. It's not enough to just expose yourself to the feared sensations. It's also important to do the cognitive work on decatastrophizing, for example, the experience of depersonalization. Depersonalization is uncomfortable, but it's not in any way dangerous. It is often the consequence of hyperventilation. Or, or it could be the consequence of rumination, but depersonalization is an uncomfortable, but never dangerous sensation. And so it's important to do the cognitive work, not just do the exposure work. You need to do both when it comes to panic disorder. So that's my, that's my soapbox. I like it. I think there's a lot more too that can be said on panic, but that will be an episode for another time. Because there's just so much to cover. This is where it's like my husband sometimes is like, you've covered so much. Do you think like, is there more to cover? And I'm like, there is 
so much. I mean, it's the tip of the iceberg in many ways. Like there, there are endless amounts of scenarios and things that can come up. And, and it's just a great reminder of that. So I know we're coming close to our time here, Carl. And I wonder, as we kind of draw to a close here, you said when you were first introduced to this in 2010, and you had to marinate in it for a while and think about it for a while before it felt like you weren't just trying to rationalize or engage in this argue with. Argue with, yes. So what do you think helped that shift for you going from arguing to what led to kind of that aha moment from the first episode? We had the movie theater analogy of where we all shot out of it. Was it like that or was it a process for you? And would love to hear what your experience with that was. Okay. I would say it took, it's interesting, it, it required a shift from my own established mindset uh-huh. that I sort of knew what OCD was, you know, that, that, that we basically understand what it is, right? That it's these common intrusive thoughts that are misappraised, and, right? And that the, really the only effective treatment was exposure with response prevention. So it took coming out of that mindset and to be sort of curious, which this was actually, there was, there was a mention of this in a, in a book of different approaches to treating OCD by Von Niekirk. It's a very good, very good book and overcoming my own resistance and sort of being curious about it. Mm Mm-hmm. And that it's also really important to sort of come to it with what they call in mindfulness is a beginner's mind, right? Is yeah. let me just put aside all my assumptions. And then for me, really beginning, really sort of taking a look at my own lived experience and the role of my imagination mm-hmm. and the immersion in my imagination for me that was transformational. Mm-hmm. I, it, it's hard to sort of describe how it took my own recovery to a new level. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you something interesting, and here's a personal story, which is that back in 19, in the mid uh, or late 1970s, I went to a Gestalt workshop mm-hmm. and I, it was my turn to do some work. And I was talking about being worried about how I was being seen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Get, getting lost through sort of social anxiety and sort of ego stuff. Yeah. And the director said to me, watch the stories that you build. That's all he said. Mm. All he said was watch the stories that you build. That was a similar transformational moment. Yeah. And there's a whole other story about sort of what came from that, but it was like, oh my God look what I'm making up here. And it had nothing to do with OCD. But this, this idea about sort of stepping back and watching the stories that we tell ourselves, yeah. it, it, it is, is such an important metacognitive shift. And I'll tell you where else this can be useful. I'll just mention this. Yeah. In a relationship, particularly in a marriage, When you're triggered by your spouse, one of the best things you could do is to say, you know, hon, when you did that, the story that I tell myself is. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Right. Right. And, 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 and it really, 
And it really cuts down on the reactivity and it's a recognition that it's less about whatever the spouse did and more about the story that I'm telling myself. I want to make this a point of, you know, there's the doorknob and then there's the story about the doorknob. Yeah. This is so important. Okay. So why do germs and spirituality and religion in other people's minds become such important grist for anxiety and obsessions? And the answer is because they're all invisible. They all go beyond the senses. And as soon as we go beyond our senses, this is where the imagination kicks in, yeah. kicks in and can take over and start building all kinds of narratives that have nothing to do with reality, right? And so it's no wonder that we get swept away by issues about germs or contamination or spiritual beliefs, et yeah. cetera. Yeah, I think that's really, really powerful. That is it's, uh, something I'm going to think about. I was going to write my memoir. My, my working title is, is God and Doorknobs. <laughs> God and Doorknobs. Yeah. It's a story. It is. It's a story. In fact, when I trained last week, I named my presentation The Story About OCD. And that's showing that I really ascribe to ICBT. I also ascribe to ERP and I give the clients the choice because clients are going to click with different frameworks. And so the last thing I need to do is force a framework that does not work for somebody. This is not going to be helpful if it's feeling forced. And this whole issue about which one do you choose? And I think the good news, if there's... No other message I want to send is, is that we have choices, yeah. right? Which is phenomenal, you know, which is phenomenal, which is that, which is that there are a lot of people, right? And we know from research who just won't do ERP because it's too scary. Yeah. Yeah. And so rather than trying to tell them that, oh, we'll come back when you're ready is to say, okay, yeah, we have a non-exposure approach. Right. I will say something else. This is, this is also really important which is that once you've done the work of ICBT and then you face the triggers, triggers that used to trigger these obsessional narratives, right? The work then, if you want to call it exposure, you call it exposure, but the work in is to stay connected to reality, connected to your sensory experience and common sense while you open the door or you drive down the road where you hold the baby, uh-huh. right? Right. Where you go shopping in the supermarket is to stay sort of grounded in reality, catching yourself crossing the bridge. So it's a really different way of facing your triggers than it is to lean into the uncertainty, feel the anxiety, sit with the anxiety, right? That's yeah. a, isn't to say that can't be helpful. I'm not saying it can't be helpful, but that's right. a really, really different approach. So I will tell you that but sometimes when you do the ICBT work first, it's a lot less scary yeah. to do, quote, exposure, if that means sort of facing things that used to scare you. And what you find out is, you know, somebody, this isn't nearly bothering me the way that it used to. And I will tell you, that itself can feel weird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Which is that 
it, it feels unusual because our habit was is to go into the story. A good unusual, though, too, I would say, because the unusual nature, when we experience something, let me just speak for myself. When an I, as a person with lived experience, experienced something unusual and had in the past before understanding ICBT, even if it was not a bad unusual, the fact that it was different would spiral me. It would say, oh, my gosh, why was this different? Why is this? Oh, my gosh, what's happening? And, and I would get in my head about that. Versus this is unusual and I'm in present looking at it kind of as an out-of-body experience going, that's different, but you know what? I'm here for that. I, I like the different, but you're suddenly kind of flipping the scripts and you're going, oh, and it's not that same scary, terrifying thing. It made me think even that experiential exercise that you led us through of somebody, because I often hear and during the online conference, saw this comment a lot of like, but how do I incorporate this? How do I incorporate this with ERP? And they're so fundamentally different. But I really like the idea of your intentionality of putting that bridge when you're opening the door, for example, putting that bridge there. The same way we were looking at your nose and trying to think of our obsessional sequence, trying to go into our obsessional narrative, opening the door and also trying to find that focal point and see if you can hold both. Can you hold both? Can you hold the, what if there was an intruder? What if I got contaminated? What if I kill grandma because I touch this and I go this and this and I mail her a letter and she goes, eh. All the things. Can you do that and focus on the people, the paint color? What color white is this? Or whatever the thing. You know, like if you're bridging yourself into the reality, does the obsessional story have an ability to sweep you away generally except for your one gentleman it doesn't you can't right 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 and i want to emphasize this i want to emphasize this about icbt because you could say that sort of distancing yourself from the scary story is cognitive diffusion which could be very very helpful that's cognitive diffusion is part of mindfulness but i will say that in icbt i really want to emphasize this we're not just distancing ourselves from the scary story. We are dismissing it. Right. We're seeing is, it as a story. Yeah, yes. And, 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 that, and that our goal is, is not just sort of sit back and sort of watch ourselves telling ourselves the scary story, which is more diffusion. Yeah. But that what we are saying, is we are dropping the story. We are dismissing it. This is irrelevant, right? Right. This is, this is irrelevant. That's my imagination. I am staying focused on reality, right? Or what I noticed from myself, if, if I was sort of describe the metacognitive process is, is that old triggers just become, you know what? I'm just not going there. Yeah. Right. You, you know, you actually get practiced in sort of beginning to cross the bridge and say, nope, not going there. And again, that is not experiential avoidance. That is not thought suppression. That is not fighting with your private experience. That's actually making a choice that this is bullshit. Yeah. I'm just not going there. Yeah. Right? You know, in my example with the, the scary movie in the movie theater years ago, I didn't have to go home and make sure scary Harrison Ford wasn't lurking or Harrison Ford, period. Like the actor, the character, whatever. Because was Harrison Ford going to be anywhere in my realm? No. Right. It would be very, very, very unlikely. And even if he were, were, would he try to murder me? 
I'm going to say no, Harrison. I think I think you've demonstrated a good record of not murdering people. And I think I would have been safe in that. But but yeah, I mean, leaving, I didn't have to prove that Harrison Ford wasn't a killer. I didn't have to prove that there wasn't some bad thing happening behind a, a, a look to the left or a right. Because, because what did you actually see? What In reality, what did you see? What you saw was a group of photons hitting a screen, yeah. creating this entire pattern that could immerse you and create this emotional reaction. But what was the reality of it? It was just... It was just white being on screen. That that's all it is. Yeah, it was light on a screen. It was actors playing a part. It was popcorn and movie theater better. Okay, now the popcorn is real. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh that. You well, could, I'm yeah. saying that. Well, even the like the movie and the photons on the screen, it's real in the sense of like it's just that, but it's not the story. It's not the it's not story, story of Harrison Ford killing people. No, right. No. So, so, and that's the thing where it's like, yeah, because I think, and I used to be in that camp that would have a hard time understanding that when I was so zoomed in to ERP and the way that functioned was that you're coming up with different excuses and you're, you're debating. And it's like, actually, for once, I'm not. For once, I'm not. For once, I'm just like, that was a story. Yeah. Period. And that is so yeah. freeing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Can I give you one more analogy, which is, you know, imagine you're on a desert island with your favorite celebrity crush, uh-huh. right? And this celebrity crush, and you're walking down this beach on the desert island, and it's beautiful, and the weather is perfect, and you're walking hand in hand, and this person is really, really into you, and can you immerse yourself in this sort of wonderful romantic scene, right? Mm-hmm. Now, when you come out of it, are you going to call for a second date? <laughs> I had such a great day. I had such a, such a wonderful time. Can we go out again? No. I know. I mean, I bet celebrities get DM'd about these, but they were <laughs> oh, like, oh, oh I yeah. was not oh, on yeah. that island, though. <laughs> yeah, because, because if you actually think you had a day, right. that crosses over into delusion. Right, right. right. Now we yeah. now we got some real problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that ain't OCD. That's that, something else. Right, right, right. right. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. I Point well taken. And I like that. I had a colleague, too, I was talking about, you know, in terms of imaginal scripts and stuff. And, and it just made me think of that. They were like, but, you know, if you're coming up with an alternative story, that is, that's an imaginal script. And I'm like, no, the imaginal script is to sit in the distress of the unknown in this immersive, terrifying situation. The alternative story which isn't to fight with OCD, is sensory data from the present. And so really, it's to stop living in the obsessional story. It's creating these here and now present tense. And in fact, a a big function of the alternative story, and in addition, the real self as opposed to the fear possible self, Uh right? That is actually at the beginning when we do this in when CBT, we don't do it when you're triggered. You actually practice this when you're not triggered. Right. And the whole idea, it's supposed to be an immersive experience. But what you're doing is, is you're immersing yourself in reality rather than immersing yourself in your imagination. And what that tends to do is weaken the strength of the obsessional narrative. That's right, right. It's not 
supposed to be used as an argument or a disputation, yeah. right? It it is it is sort of practicing the opposite of what happens when lost in the narrative. It's very opposite. Yeah, it's like actually instead of being in our imagination, we're purposely, right. yeah. Right. Yeah, well, Carl, I have really enjoyed this chat, and I think this is going to be so helpful for people trying to wrap their minds around, and particularly, I think, for folks that have experienced depersonalization to the point that they're aware of, like, I'm having these kind of out-of-body experiences or, like, I'm disconnected, and recognizing, like, how that is just one of OCD's many ways that it it can just really bring this suffering to folks. And so having that insight and being able to learn how to go in and out, every time I tell a client, yeah, you know, we're going to practice going in and out. They're like, ooh, they feel like a distress about thinking about going in it and then out of it, right? But at the same time, once they start practicing it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so much better, right? Because now actually I've been in it for so long that realizing that I can get out of it again that concept of out really being able to come out of it and have a context for reorienting yourself and shifting attention to the reality of the moment is so great and it's so funny because leading up to it people have some anxiety and they go oh but I don't want to like what if I get stuck there? There's that what if, right? What if I go in and I spiral and I have another big episode and a big flare? And it's, yeah, we're already in it. We're in it. And yeah. being able to come out is such, just such a powerful tool to have. So thank you. I appreciate you being here. It's been wonderful. It's, it's so easy to talk to you and bounce ideas back and forth. Yes. You're so skilled at that. Oh, thank you. Well, and you, again, as I've indicated to the fam here, but you looked up, there was one person. And now there is an army of people and clients that are becoming informed and coming in and forming their therapists. Hey, I want to know more about ICBT. And, and the therapists are either learning or they're referring to somebody that has that effect here in the U.S. And again, a lot of work internationally being done around this, but that effect in the U.S. has been really held by you. And you could have given up. It would have been easier, probably, in many ways to give up facing kind of a sea of different ways of thinking about this. So thank you for all you've done to help disseminate this information and bring it from a global impact to really be a part of the U.S. as well. I, I want to express some some particular gratitude which is first of all to fred ardema yeah. and karen connor who developed this the university of montreal right so it's imported yes it is <laughs> right but uh, it's really important and you know who are just who are just so brilliant brilliant thinkers clinicians and researchers sadly we lost karen a few years ago but fred is still alive and well and if you ever get a chance to learn from him it's a wonderful experience. And I also want to give a shout out to Mike Hetty, who is my colleague. And Mike really took the deep dive and, as Mike would say, unpacked ICBT and has really been such an important teacher, disseminator, proponent. And 
I will also say Mike's diplomatic skills are far better than mine. So I think that he's been able to sort of reach a lot of people that I haven't been able to reach. And then also is that there are a number of early adopters, many of them, you know, people with lived experience who, who were interested in this. I, I won't mention their names, but you guys know who you are, who have become some of the fabulous teachers and trainers and disseminators. So, and they have truly been fellow travelers and have well surpassed me in terms of their understanding of ICBT and their ability to teach it. So it, it's, it's just been really, it, it, it's been so gratifying and such an exciting, satisfying journey. And I think, as you say, I think we've just begun to scratch the surface of the possibilities. So thank you. Thank you for being for being a fellow traveler, fellow opponent of this of this approach. Ah, well, I'm I'm happy to be traveling along, and I have a lot more free time to travel along when I don't live in the obsessional stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's enabled me to have a hobby here. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, free is a, free is the words for it. Maybe a good thing to do would be to end with a poem. Yeah, I would love that. Okay. This was given to a, a colleague from a patient who, who had a transformational experience with ICBT. It, it'll just take me a minute or two. This is on this by a man by the name of Jim Peterson. It's called Awakening. I know the many doubts that spring from unknown places. They are thoughts without meaning except that which I offer. I've come to recognize that this inner voice is not my voice. It is a part of me, but only as a dream is of the dreamer. It is a voice that tells me of past hurts and future fears. It is a voice that only lives in the dream. I'll say that again. It's a voice that only lives in the dream. It fears awakening and its destruction, so it masquerades as me. I am fooled no longer. I choose awakening. That is a wonderful description of what this journey is like yeah yeah that is i got chills y'all i got chills that's powerful and that's the present experience it's as immersive as the land of imagination can be look at that how powerful it is to come and reground yourself in the here and now to to awaken to have that freedom that is that's beautiful in, in, in this idea of build sort of like waking up like waking up from a dream and keep in mind, and this is another analogy and metaphor, which is that when we're in a dream, right, it feels surreal, right? Yeah. And then when we awaken and it can be, take a little bit of time to sort of reorient to the present, but it's a recognition, oh, it was just a dream, right? And we don't have to run from the dragon right. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I love the message of hope. And I, it, it just goes to show the power of a person. Sometimes we think, I'm one person. What can I do? These two people got together and they wrote this manual, ICBT. This other group, even as you've said, you've gotten to see the whole process coming from psychoanalysis into the foundation of ERP even starting to now. But also just if we're thinking about ourselves, if we're thinking about our loved ones that have lived experience, the key, you get to be the key. And when you can have that and, and have someone to help guide and direct you through that awakening process, 
it's foundational and it can be intense. But when we also can come out of it and realize this is unusual, but in that different way that isn't disarming, that's awakening, that's awareness, that's present, that's not dissociated is so powerful. And so the power of one person, the power of you, whoever's listening out there, the power of one person is pretty phenomenal. And you too, Carl, and all of the folks that you mentioned are doing that too and helping bring that awareness and that awakening to others. And so thank you so much and appreciate the time and for being a part one and part two here. And thank you for having me. Thank you for thoughts. Oh, family. Woo! I mean, what an absolute treat to continue this conversation with Carl. And fam, what a treat that you are here with us as well. We really are better together. And if you did catch last week's episode, then I'm guessing it probably now makes a lot of sense why last week's intrusive thought segment really kind of helped prop us up for today's conversation. Because it was all about staying present, taking in sensory data, taking in evidence in our here and our now. And we can see that much like Carl's nose, or maybe the music that did play in the background while we were reflecting, or even an object that you are able to focus on in your periphery, it's grounding. It's a choice to shift and target attention right here, right now. So it was really perfect for the interest of that segment because fam, this is where and when we take what we've heard and we apply it. We make it useful for our here, our now. And as of this publication, we are mere, mere days away from Christmas. I can't even believe it. We are a little over a week out from the new year. And while this time of year can be so exciting and so fun for so many, it can also be so painful and so difficult, fam. Just yesterday, as my husband was driving the kids to school, he encountered like five fire trucks and a bunch of emergency response workers attending to some real emergency in our neighborhood. Christmas or not, hard things, difficult things, painful things happen. Families can be broken. Folks can feel not accepted or alone or isolated for who they are. Folks can be terrified by these really terrifying, really anxiety-provoking absorbing stories. We have our loved ones, or maybe even ourselves, struggling through so many different battles, visible and invisible alike. Or you may be some of our return fam here for a family reunion. Hey, welcome. But in the midst of a crisis for you or your loved one, today brings what today brings, fam. And I see that. So many of us here at the OCD family community see that and feel that you're not alone. So my petition to you, whether you find us amidst the holly jollies or in the eye of the storm, is to take a moment, again, where we can practice being present. Practice grounding in your here, your now. Because as hard and scary and overwhelming and maybe even impossible as things may seem, this battle, this trench you're in, I have to say it's, it's a bit crowded, fam. Because we're all in here in our own ways. But golly, knowing we're not alone, if anything, that's everything. So here's a simple exercise that can help us to shift attention again and make space for our present reality. Now, Carl and I talked about this, and honestly, I can't even remember if we mentioned it last week or not. I don't believe it was here today. 
but some of you may be familiar with it. And again, it really taps into using our five senses because literally what we do is we're going to count down from five to one, picking a sense like sight. What are the five things I can see in my current environment right now? And then four, next sense, touch. So what can I touch? And I've created a little infographic over at this episode's blog, if that's helpful, to have some concrete direction on how you can participate in this exercise. But the order and the senses, ultimately, that's not what really matters, fam. You can interchange them, so feel free. Mix it up. Have a ball. What matters is that you are shifting your attention to your here, your now. So for me, this could look like uh, five. Okay, I see five things. I see my computer. That's one. I see my soundboard that I use for the podcast. I see art supplies. Number three, just on the edge of my peripheral view because I was making a present for my niece this week, also at my desk where I podcast. Uh, I see a microphone for talking into it right now. And I see a little Christmas tree. A small reminder that yes, despite me blinking and months seemingly flying by, it is Christmas. And then I keep counting down, fam. So four, I can touch my keyboard while I do what's needed to upload this episode, bring it to you. I can, uh, number two of four, I can feel the hair on the back of my neck, making me wonder if I should pull it back or leave it up. Do I care? Do I want to do something with that feeling? Hmm. I can touch my water glass, which I've reached for quite a lot this week because I have been on the tail end of a persistent cold and that has not felt great. And I can touch my, is that you, Emma? I was just thinking about you, Emmy. I was just thinking about how I can hug you. Did you just get home from school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What did you do today at school? Um, I got a bow and a candy cane. You got a bow and a candy cane? Yeah. You earned it? Yeah. It was just a pretend train. It was a pretend train, but yeah. you got to ride it? <laughs> I'm so excited. I just earned my ticket. You earned your ticket. Okay. Great job. So I can hug my Emma, who earned her train ticket. There's a story there, fam. She was uh, having quite the afternoon yesterday. She almost lost out on a special privilege at school, but she earned it. I could touch that and I could hear that in my hearing now. And so for me this year, I'm not only going to be practicing this as I've started here with you, but when the emotions, whether they be joyous or jarring, risk sweeping me away, I'm going to practice this grounding technique. And I encourage you to as well. Maybe it'll end with a taste of sugar plum or a partridge in a pear tree. Maybe it'll conclude with the saltiness of tears. But here's what I do know. In the present family, there is freedom, especially when it comes to OCD. And so my wish for you is to stay present and know that you're not alone. Merry Christmas, family. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing's says family like grounding ourselves while saying bye to those elves on a shelf.
That's right. I went there. And you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.